Turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. The book of Mark, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to camp out on the book of Mark for the remainder of the year, uh, perhaps even into next year. We'll see how it goes. But certainly the rest of, the rest of this year, uh, an important book. I mean, all of the books of the Bible, obviously important. Uh, Mark, particularly important, given the climate here in this country in our day. Uh, many reasons why I say that, two uh, merit mentioning at the outset. Uh, two reasons why this book is particularly important, why this book is particularly relevant. Uh, the first is polemical. Uh, we need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. I'll repeat that. We need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. Almost 50% of this country's population claims to be born again. Almost 50%. An extremely high percentage of this country's population attends church services regularly. Here's the question. Why doesn't it look like it? If almost 50% of this country is born again, um, why doesn't it look like it? Now, there are two reasons. Well, there are many. Two main reasons. First is this. The church has failed to proclaim a biblical gospel. The church has failed to proclaim a biblical gospel. Rather than proclaiming the depravity of man, the sovereignty of God, the beauty of of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the absolute necessity of repentance from sin. The church talks about a God whose greatest objective seems to be to make us happy. Secondly, the church has failed to present a biblical Christ. Rather than presenting a mighty Savior who through his substitutionary sacrifice rescue sinners from God's righteous judgment. The church talks about a Christ who wants to be our BFF. And that is the state in which we find ourselves. Uh, It has failed to proclaim a biblical gospel. It has failed to present a biblical Christ. And as a result, there is this disconnect between what the majority of people profess to believe in the actual lives they live. And so by the end of our study, maybe January, February, next year, I want us to be very clear on the biblical gospel and on the biblical Christ. That makes Mark's book very important. The second reason is this, not polemical. Uh, The second reason is pastoral. We need to study this book with a view to encountering, embracing, and enjoying Christ. I'll repeat it. We need to study this book, the book of Mark, with a view to encountering, embracing, and enjoying Christ. We are made for eternity. Uh, We are made, we are wired for something greater than ourselves. Uh, We are made for something greater 
than anything this world has to offer. Uh, Intrinsically, inherently, we know it's true. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most likely explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, we are spiritual beings. And yet, uh, most people on the face of this earth, they are determined to uh, satisfy that which is spiritual, that which is eternal, with something temporal and material. Uh, We see it in many ways. I don't want to belabor this. We see it in many ways, but let me give you uh, one example. It just sort of came to mind this past week. Don't ask why, but it came to mind. Um, The entire romantic genre, romantic literature. I don't know if you've ever been in the habit of reading romantic novels, but uh, the whole whole genre of of romance is is based on a, a basic premise, right? The premise is this. Each of us has a soulmate. And if only we could find our soulmate, we would be happy. The reason you aren't happy right now, the reason you aren't satisfied right now, is because you haven't found your soulmate. And maybe you're in a relationship with someone who isn't your soulmate. And so what you need to do is find that soulmate. And you will find happiness. And so a good romance novel is based on a tension. What is the tension? Uh, Between two two, uh, starry-eyed lovers, between two soulmates who for some reason are separated. And the tension in good, I I use the word good loosely, you get the idea of what I'm saying. You're good in the world's eyes. Uh, The the, the basic premise then of of a romance novel, novel, romance fiction, is is how these two will find themselves and therefore find their ultimate happiness and live happily ever after. Here's the problem. Uh, The the premise is false. Uh, Friend, finding your true soulmate will not bring you happiness. Uh, what, what the romance novels never, never portray is what happens three years down the road when the couple's divorced and they've gone their separate ways and found their new soulmate, right? Finding your soulmate will not make you happy. Now, let me add to that. Finding that perfect house uh, won't make you happy. Uh, just finding that career uh, will not make you happy. It will not bring you satisfaction. No. See, we, we are wired for something far greater than this world. We are wired for something far greater than anything this world has to offer us. We can find ultimate satisfaction, true joy, true blessedness, true happiness in one person alone. It is God. The Lord Jesus declared, John 6 made it clear, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and who believes in me shall never thirst. And so by the end of our study of the book of Mark, I want us to be seeking and savoring Christ. So that's the long-term goal, six, seven months out. We're going to make our way through 16 chapters, and I want us to keep those two principal reasons in view. I'll repeat them at, at different intervals during the course of this study. But again, let me give them to you right at the outset so we're clear. The first is polemical. We need to study the book of Mark with a view to discerning declaring and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. And the second is pastoral. We need to study the book of Mark with a view to encountering, embracing, and enjoying 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with those two firmly in place, you found the book of Mark. You found chapter 1. I assume you found verse 1. Follow along as I begin reading through to verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? I mean, that is a question that modern man has, has pondered. I even believe it, it made uh, the cover of one of the issues of Time magazine uh, a few years ago. Who is Jesus Christ? It, it is a question that, that our generation ponders. It is a question that generations before us have pondered. And there have been a plethora of theories. He's a sectarian. He's a fanatic, a philosopher, healer. Sage, teacher, rabbi, humanist, reformer, prophet, visionary, philanthropist, and on and on the theories go. Return with me to the first verse of Mark 1 and hear how Mark describes Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is, right there in that statement, the most basic, uh, the most profound, the most foundational, fundamental truth we can affirm concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. It's interesting, Mark, uh, no fanfare, no no drawn-out introduction. He doesn't lay any, any groundwork. He doesn't... He doesn't get there in a, in, in a wind, following a windy road. He just begins his epistle. He lays it right out there. Here's the starting point. Here's my essential premise. This gospel, the beginning of this gospel, is about Jesus Christ. And I want you to get this. If you get nothing else, understand this. He is the Son of God. But he doesn't leave it there. 
He goes on right through to verse 13, and he shows us, he reveals to us uh, how this was confirmed at the outset or affirmed at the outset of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three ways. I'm going to give them to you right at the outset, and then we're going to go back and look at each in detail. The first is this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It was announced by the Baptist, John the Baptist, verses 2 through 8. It was confirmed, secondly, by the Father, verses 9 through 11. And thirdly, it was tested by the devil, verses 9 through 12, 11 through 13. And so here we have these these three proofs, if you like, uh, these three pieces of evidence that Mark gives us right at the outset as he's begun his epistle with this great declaration, this great affirmation, that this book that I'm writing is about the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to be perfectly clear at the outset as to who he is. He is the Son of God. This shouldn't surprise us. That truth was announced by the Baptist. Who am I referring to? John the Baptist, Christ's herald, Christ's forerunner. And so immediately in verses 2 and 3, Mark turns to the Old Testament. He turns to two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament to prepare us for this forerunner, for this herald who announced, who made made ready the way for the coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first text in verse 2 is actually taken from the book of Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read the verse for you in its entirety. No need for you to turn there. But there we read, it's God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And so Malachi makes it clear that someone is coming. Who's coming? God. It is God speaking. Uh, I will send my messenger... Before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will come suddenly to his temple. And so we're given this information that God is coming. And secondly, we're given a second piece of information that before God comes, a messenger will come. So two truths, two pieces of information in this prophecy penned hundreds of years before Christ's coming. That God is coming. But before God comes, a messenger will come. And then we move into verse 3, and here we have a citation from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who is coming? God. What proceeds God's coming? A voice announcing, proclaiming, The coming of God. And so two prophecies, one from Malachi, one from Isaiah, both essentially affirming the same two truths, two pieces of information. Firstly, God is coming. Secondly, a messenger, a voice, will precede God's coming. And then immediately in verse 4, what does Mark affirm? John appeared. In other words, John is the promised messenger. John is the promised voice. 
And then what Mark does is he gives us two pieces of evidence to, to, to prove, to demonstrate, so that, so that we're not left in any doubt that John the Baptist is indeed the promised messenger, this promised voice. The first piece of evidence is this, his message. Look at it in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, I'm into verse 5, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so there's John's message, a baptism of repentance. He calls people to repent of their sins, to give evidence of the repentance in this external sign, baptism. Why is that significant? Well, if we go back to the very last prophecy in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, we discover that the messenger who precedes God's coming will call people to repentance. This is exactly what John the Baptist did. Now, there's a second piece of evidence. Brings us into the sixth verse. Christ, John's clothing. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You're gonna, you're, we're going to see that in the book of Mark, there are no throwaway phrases. Uh, the book of Mark is, is packed with details. And the details, each of the details, they may appear to just be part of a bigger narrative and not that important, but we'll see that each of the details carries weight and significance. This is is a case in point. Because here, John the Baptist, is uh, Mark is again pointing us to the Old Testament to show that the messenger, the voice, is John the Baptist. And this description he gives here of John, that he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt, we see it in the Old Testament. Way back in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it is an exact description of whom? Elijah. Why is that significant? Well, what is the very last prophecy of the Old Testament? Malachi chapter 4. That yes, a messenger, a voice will precede God's coming. And yes, this messenger will, 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 will preach repentance and call people to repentance. But there it's very explicit that this messenger will be Elijah. Some of the Jews were confused. They were actually expecting Elijah reincarnated. But Luke tells us that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And his message was exactly the same. His message was Elijah's message all those centuries earlier, repent. And he calls the people to repentance in preparation for God's coming. And so having given those two pieces of evidence... He takes us into the seventh verse, Mark does, and he he shows us what John declares. He preached, saying, after me. And so he's established, John the Baptist is the messenger. John the Baptist is the voice, preparing for God's coming. After me comes he, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. This person who is coming is no mere mortal. Uh, This person, this individual who is coming is greater than than I am. His greatness is to such an extent, such a degree that I'm not even worthy to grovel before him and undo the straps of his sandals. 
And what will this one doing do who is coming? Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you. As was promised and foretold in the Old Testament, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so all the way back to verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You want proof? You want evidence? It was announced by the Baptist. Now he furnishes a second piece of evidence, brings us into verses 9 through 11. It was confirmed by the Father that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Three details packed into these three verses, one in verse 9, one in verse 10, one in verse 11. Work through them with me. In the ninth verse, detail number one, John baptizes Christ. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. That creates a dilemma. It ought to create a dilemma in our minds. Uh, What was John preaching? What was John proclaiming? A baptism of repentance. Well, why does the Lord Jesus need to be baptized? Uh, Why does the Lord Jesus need need to participate in this baptism of repentance? Christ doesn't need to repent. Christ has never sinned. And so why does John baptize the Lord Jesus Christ in the Jordan River? We need to be very clear here. The Lord Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River because the Lord Jesus is identifying himself with his people. The Lord Jesus is is about to embark on his ministry, which will culminate in the cross. Uh, The Lord Jesus... He does not fulfill his ministry as an individual. He fulfills his ministry as a public figure. He fulfills and completes his ministry on behalf of his people. And so right here at the Jordan River, Christ is identifying with his people. He is identifying with what? Their sin and their need for repentance. And he is identifying the fact, proclaiming the fact that he is about to embark on his ministry and that he will fulfill all righteousness on behalf of his people. Not only that, but that he will go to Calvary's cross and at Calvary's cross he will bear God's righteous indignation on behalf of his people. And there he will enter through the floodwaters of the wrath and judgment of God, which his people deserve. So John is scandalized initially. When the Lord Jesus comes, I want to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. But you see, the Lord Jesus is not acting as an individual. The Lord Jesus is acting as the representative of his people, a public figure, identifying with covenant breakers, identifying with disobedient sinners, and declaring that from that moment on, culminating in the cross, all that he does will be on behalf of his people. So John baptizes Christ. Second detail is this. It brings us into the 10th verse. The Spirit descends on Christ. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a a dove. Lots going on here. Here we have the Spirit of God descending. This, 
symbolic act uh, of anointing, identifying Christ as the promised one, uh, identifying Christ, anointing Christ as a, as a greater prophet than, uh, than Moses, uh, anointing Christ as a greater priest than Aaron, anointing Christ as a greater king than David, uh, publicly declaring that the Lord Jesus Christ would go forth in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit's equipping, the Spirit's enabling to fulfill that threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. All of that is taking place here. All of that is transpiring at this moment as the Spirit of God descends, confirming that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and that he would go forth in the power of the Spirit to accomplish that mission for which he had come. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's actually fascinating. And in this verse, the very last few words, the Holy Spirit, as he descends, he's described as a, as a dove. Uh, like a dove. Uh, the intent is to make us look back. Uh, the intent is to send us back in our mind's eye all the way to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 2, where we read that the Spirit of God hovered, literally fluttered over the waters. It's interesting, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament actually inserts, which is, which is the scriptures many of these people would have been familiar with in Christ's day, actually inserts in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovered, fluttered like a dove. Like a dove. You see, at creation, we have God triune bringing all things into existence. We have God, we have the Word, we have the Spirit. And now here at Christ's baptism, again, we have God the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Spirit. And Mark is, is sending us back to creation to understand that, yes, way back in Genesis 1-2, there was a beginning. And that beginning was brought about, that creation was brought about by the triune God's activity. We'll understand that this one whom the Spirit is now anointing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one of old, what he is going to accomplish will bring into effect, will bring to pass a new creation, a new world order, eventually a new heavens and a new earth. And here we have the triune God again creating a new creation as opposed to the old creation. But there's a third detail. It brings us into the 11th verse. And here the Father makes a declaration quoting from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So yes, Christ is baptized. John baptizes Christ. Why? Because Christ is identifying publicly with his people. The Spirit descends like a dove. Yes, why? Yes, testifying to the, this, this, this is a new creation. This is an act of God's power, the power of the triune God, and anointing the Lord Jesus Christ, enabling and equipping him for the ministry that he's going to fulfill. And then the Father himself speaks from heaven, confirming it. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. All the way back to the first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. How do we know it? Well, it was announced by the Baptist. And it was confirmed by a father. And thirdly, it was tested by the devil. Verse 12. 
the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Mark is, Mark is interesting. He doesn't give us very many details, does he? Uh, the devil tempts Christ. That's about all he has to say about it. If you want details, we want details, we need to go to Matthew. Now, Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses, and Matthew gives a lot of detail as to exactly, exactly what, what happened in that, in that encounter there in the wilderness between, between Satan and Christ. But that's not Mark's point. Mark, Mark doesn't want to get into the nitty-gritty. He doesn't want to get into the details. Uh, for him, the fact that it's the devil that tempts the Lord Jesus is actually a side issue. He's emphasizing something else here. And it comes out clearly in the 12th verse. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Why? Christ's rendezvous with Satan is by God's appointment. Christ's rendezvous with Satan in the wilderness where he is going to be tempted is by God's design. It is the Spirit having anointed him, having descended like a dove, who immediately, the first thing that must happen is he drives him out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Why? To test him. So that it it, it is made clear, it is made abundantly clear that this is indeed God's beloved Son. That this is indeed the one in whom, with whom, God is well pleased. And then notice what we read after the temptation, at the end of the 13th verse. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering, to him. How? Outwardly, I'm guessing here, but outwardly I think it's a pretty good guess that uh, the Lord Jesus had fasted 40 days, 40 nights. That At the end of this temptation, the angels brought physical sustenance to him, food, just as God had provided for his servant Elijah centuries before. Uh, they ministered to him inwardly. How? Their very presence uh, was a token of what? God's favor. That Christ had withstood the temptation. That Christ had withstood the devil's onslaught. The Father sends these angels to minister to him outwardly, inwardly, as tokens of God's favor upon him, again confirming what he had already declared in the 11th verse. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now all the way back to verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How do we know it? Well, it was announced by the Baptist. It was confirmed by the Father. And it was tested by the devil. Now, in all of this, I'm going to ask you to really think here. Shake your head, loosen up those cobwebs, and think here. Mark, as he writes, is conveying, it's an undercurrent, but it's a strong undercurrent that he wants to impress upon us. See, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God, yes, John the Baptist announced it. Yes, the Father declared it and confirmed it. Yes, the devil himself tested it. We know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is the Son of God. But here is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have as an undercurrent in these verses essential elements of the gospel. And the most essential of these is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ, as he embarks on his ministry, he does so, I've said it before, let me say it again, he does so 
as a public figure. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the foundation of the gospel. Let, let, me, let me try to convey to you how Mark, how Mark declares it, reveals it here in these verses. The first is this. He's seeking to convey to us, he's seeking to impress upon us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is true Israel, the true Israel. Well, how does he do that? Well, consider the parallels. Consider the parallels. Uh, we all know, we're familiar with the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Exodus. Uh, Israel over here, that God brought Israel, his son, out of Egypt. We know that, don't we? Well, we also know, we go to Mark chapter 2, that uh, Joseph and Mary took the Lord Jesus. They fled to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill the boy, remember? And then after a while, they returned. And there in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes from Hosea, the book of Hosea, to demonstrate what? Out of Egypt I have called my son. And so just as Israel, God called Israel his son out of Egypt, God called Christ his son out of Egypt. Having called Israel his son out of Egypt, uh, God led them where? To the Red Sea. Where we read in Paul's epistles to the Corinthians, they were baptized into Moses. Well, having called his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of Egypt, He leads him where? To the Jordan River to be baptized as the public representative, the public figure who is going to act on behalf of his people. And then in the case of Israel, he brought Israel, his son, out of Egypt. And then he led Israel, his son, through the Red Sea where they were baptized into Moses. And then he led them by the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, into the wilderness. Well, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought him out of Egypt He led him to the Jordan River where he was baptized. And then by the Holy Spirit, he led him where? Into the wilderness. You've seen the parallels here. Back to Israel, God's son. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He led Israel through the Red Sea where they were baptized into Moses. He led them by the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, into the wilderness. And there he tested them for 40 years. He called his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of Egypt led him to the Jordan River where he was baptized, then led him by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and nights to be tested, tempted. Now, one more parallel. God brought his son Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea where they were baptized into Moses, led them by the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, into the wilderness, led them there for 40 years where they were tested, and Israel proved to be a faithless son unfaithful son. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, God called his son out of Egypt, led him to the Jordan River where he was baptized, identifying publicly with his people whom he came to save. Then he led him into the wilderness by the Spirit. There he was tested 40 days and 40 nights, and there he was proved to be the faithful son. You see, friends, Christ is the true son. Furthermore, Christ is the true Israel. And all that had been promised to Israel in the Old Testament is found and fulfilled in Christ. He is a public figure who acts publicly, representatively, on behalf of his people. 
Now, not only that, Mark wants us to get that. It's subtle, but it's there. It's an undercurrent. Not only does he want us to get that, because that is the beginning of the gospel. We need to understand that. He wants us to get that not only is Christ the true son, the true Israel, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the last Adam. Because you see, you look at the parallels between Adam and Christ. And you go all the way back to creation. And he drives us back to creation with that reference to the spirit descending like a dove, doesn't he? He sends us all the way back to creation. And there we realize that when God created the heavens and the earth and created Adam and Eve, he established Adam as the head of creation. He established Adam as the head of humanity. Now here we have the Lord Jesus Christ anointed by the Spirit of God, the Spirit descending like a dove. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ standing as the head of a new creation, standing as the head of a new humanity. So here you have Adam, the head of an old humanity, all who are in him. And here you have the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who are one with him. And then God tested Adam, didn't he, in the garden? And God tested Christ in the wilderness. And in the garden, Adam failed, didn't he? And in the wilderness, Christ triumphed, didn't he? Consider the parallels. Adam stands as the head of the old creation. Christ stands as the head of the new Adam was in the garden. Christ was in the wilderness. Adam was satisfied. Christ was hungry. Adam was surrounded by tame animals. Christ was surrounded by wild animals. Adam had every advantage. Christ had every disadvantage. Adam chose not to delight in God. Christ chose to delight in God. Adam chose to ignore God's word. Christ chose to cling to God's word. Adam disobeyed and failed. Christ obeyed and triumphed. Adam's transgression resulted in death and condemnation for all men. Christ's act of righteousness results in life and justification for all men. As Paul declares in Romans 5, as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made constituted sinners, so by one man's obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ, the many will be made constituted righteous. Do you see the parallel? You dare not miss it, friend. That is the beginning of the gospel. To understand this is not individualistic. To understand the Lord Jesus is not a lone wolf. The Lord Jesus is not some lonely, solitary figure just sort of stumbling through life and things just kind of happen to him. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, promised of old, foretold, of old, who has come to act on behalf of his people. It was affirmed, announced by the Baptist. It was declared, confirmed by the Father. And it was tested by the devil and proven to be true. And here we have in the Lord Jesus, the true Israel, Son of God. And here we have in the Lord Jesus, the last Adam. The one who has identified publicly with his people in their sin. And the one who embarks on a public ministry fulfilling all righteousness, submitting himself perfectly to the law. And the one who climbs Calvary's cross and lays down his life to pay the penalty for his people's sins. You see, friends, that is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Now, there are three encouraging words here for us as Christians, three very encouraging words. Let me give them to you quickly. The first is this, friend. It's based on verse 8. Christ has baptized us with the Holy Spirit. Eighth verse, I have baptized you with water, John says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an historical event. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost. The Lord Jesus Christ, having laid down his life at Calvary's cross, having taken it up again, the resurrection, having ascended on high, he sent forth the Spirit, that which had been promised, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, inaugurating, constituting, forming what? His mystical body, his spiritual body, the church. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we immediately become partakers of that baptism. And by virtue of that baptism, the Spirit has baptized us into Christ. He has made us one with Christ, whereby all that belongs to Christ is ours. Christ's names, they're ours. We are Christians because he is Christ. We are sons of God, small s, because he is the Son of God. We are perfectly righteous. In God's sight. Because God, Christ is the righteous one. We possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Second encouraging word is this. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. He's fulfilled the law on our behalf. It's there subtly. It's made clear in the other gospels in the ninth verse. When the Lord Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Again, identifying with covenant breakers. Identifying publicly with sinners. And declaring that from that moment as he initiates, as he begins his ministry, everything he does will be on behalf of his people. We're strong. We get it when it comes to the cross. We get it when it comes to Christ suffering for us at Calvary's cross. Where we're weak, what we don't always get or understand, it it, it is equally true. It is the perfect life he lived that was on our behalf. And now it is our Savior's, as we sing, it is our Savior's obedience and blood which hide all our transgressions from view. It is his substitutionary life and it is his substitutionary death. It is the perfect life he lived, his righteousness imputed to me, and the perfect death he died, taking away the penalty for my sin. It is his obedience, and it is his blood that hide my transgressions from view. And so it's wonderful, isn't it? That as the Lord Jesus emerges from the, up from the water, and as the Spirit descends like a dove, And as the Father declares, you are, right there in the 11th verse, my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It is marvelous, Christian, when we contemplate and think for a moment that as God looks at his children, as he looks at us now, as we stand in Christ, he says to each and every one of us, you are my beloved Son. Not because of anything in us. Not because of anything you've ever done or I've ever done. Not because of any inkling of obedience or righteousness of our own. But because we are knit together, made one with his son. As God looks at you, Christian, right now, he says, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. 
Again, if you start looking into yourself for the reason for that, you're lost. You're going to blow it. If I, if I start searching for something I've done in the past or something I'm expecting to do in the future to merit that, earn that, I, I've, I've, I've completely misunderstood. No, it is by virtue of this baptism. It is by virtue of the fact that we are part of a body. The body has a head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are knit together with him by the Holy Spirit, whereby we have become one. He gets our sin and pays the penalty for it in full at Calvary's cross. We get his righteousness to such a degree that the Father now looks upon us and declares, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The third encouraging word is this, quickly. Christ has defeated the devil on our behalf. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was, I didn't mention, say anything about this earlier, I'll say something now. He was with the wild animals. Why does Mark throw that in there? can't know for certain, but I, I'm inclined to think that uh, Mark, who's writing from Rome, and is writing at the beginning of what? A, an era, a period of, of terrible persecution, where be- believers will find themselves in the Roman forum in the midst of what? Wild beasts. He's reminding them what? That your Lord and Savior has been there. That your Lord and Savior has been in the middle of it. He has been in the thick of it. And he has overcome it. And to impart to his readers and to impart to us, in the words of Thomas Manton, that when we are in Satan's hands, we remember that Satan is in God's hands. Three Encouraging words. Christ has baptized us with the Holy Spirit. Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And Christ has defeated the devil on our behalf. Three encouraging words for the believer. And what of the unbeliever? Look at verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. If you're an unbeliever, hear these words. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here we have the beginning of the gospel. It concerns a person, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. John the Baptist announced it. The Father confirmed it. The devil tested it. And here we have the essential content, the beginning of this gospel, that the Lord Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to act, to fulfill his ministry as a public figure, a representative, acting, ministering, serving, living, and dying on behalf of his people. Repent and believe the gospel. Pray with me. Our Father, your word says that there is no one who calls upon your name No one who rouses himself to take hold of you. And we confess it is the blindness and dullness of our corrupt hearts that keeps us from you. We desperately need your spirit to incline our hearts to you. We desperately need your son of righteousness to shine upon our hearts. He alone is able to raise the dead heart, break the hard heart, heal the broken heart, and calm the troubled heart. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active. 
discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know our hearts. Show them to us that we might turn from our sin. Give us hearts to love you. Give us hearts to take hold of you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.